Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. In August, President Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes hundreds of billions of dollars worth of incentives for clean energy and is a key part of the U.S.'s effort to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. On today's podcast, we're going to explore how much the IRA might in fact drive down emissions this decade and at what financial cost or benefit to consumers. My guest is Dallas Bertraw, an economist and a senior fellow with Resources for the Future. Earlier this month, Dallas and colleagues published research that projects the economic, environmental, and health impacts of the IRA to the year 2030. In the podcast, we'll discuss these projected outcomes and look at the assumptions driving them. We'll also look at potential barriers that may limit the IRA's ability to drive clean energy growth. Dallas, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Good to be here. Yeah, you were with us about three years ago talking about carbon pricing. Different topic today, but it's it's all pretty well interconnected. So I wonder if you could get us started here uh, by framing the significance of the IRA as a piece of energy and climate legislation, and now, obviously, law. Okay, well, I don't want to have anybody drive off the road when I say this, but I firmly believe that this is the most important piece of environmental legislation in the U.S. since the 1970 Clean Air Act. And that awareness is just, I think, dawning on people now as the breadth uh, and magnitude of the IRA comes into view. But there are a number of uncertainties about whether its full impact will be realized. It's important to know that it emphasizes a carrot approach rather than sticks, that it is entirely constructed of incentive, but generous incentives for clean energy and related outcomes. It was passed as part of budget reconciliation. If you remember the whole narrative over the last you know, 24 months about Biden's climate proposals, uh, they, they were unable to achieve the 60 votes necessary in the U.S. Senate to do what would look like normal po- policy coming out of a committee set of committee hearings and structure. So instead, this is uh, enacted through budget reconciliation, which means that it has to be about tax and spend rather than about specific policy goals. But of course, that ta- those tax and spend provisions are carefully and extensively aligned to achieve policy-related outcomes. Now, it's a, it's a really comprehensive package, including many incentives outside the power sector for vehicles, fuels, and industry. However, the heart of it is in the electric power sector. And uh, I'll say that it's it's got funding through 2032, which, as you say, Andy, is about you know, people with funding for clean energy is maybe $270 billion and the total package is $380 billion perhaps, but that funding is not capped and it continues until the electricity sector emissions fall to 25% of 2022 levels, which our modeling and several other models indicate is unlikely until later in the next decade. So in other words, the funding is not capped on an annual basis once once the legislation takes effect, and it could continue well past 2032. 
So you recently published a paper on the topic, which is called Beyond Clean Energy. That's the title of the paper. And in it, you and your fellow researchers modeled the financial and environmental impact of the IRA in terms of cost to consumers and the reduction of several types of emissions. Overall, what did you find? Overall, the focus is, of course, about emission reductions. Uh, There are other provisions in the IRA which are important but lesser, for example, prescription drugs. We're not going to talk about that today. The primary attention is around the climate and energy-related goals. Um, And we find that the IRA will take emissions to about, you know, there's a range because we do different scenarios that we can discuss, but uh, to about 65 or 66 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. And those are specific to the electricity sector. Those are not economy-wide. Yes, thank you. And that's correct. There's also substantial reductions in sulfur dioxide emissions by quite a range, but from one-third, two-thirds from 2022 levels. And this would end up at a level of sulfur dioxide emissions that are just 4 to 6% of what they were in 2005. This is worth. This is noteworthy as we move on to talk about climate because over most of my career, sulfur dioxide emissions were represented the uh, most prominent threat to environmental and public health. And now in the power sector, since 2005, they've been reduced to just you know, roughly 5%. They will be reduced to just roughly 5% of what they were. And NOx emissions are going to fall by a comparable magnitude within the power sector. Um, but it is called the Inflation Reduction Act. So what is it doing to prices? And the electricity prices we model are expected to fall by 6 to 7% on a national average basis over the decade. Uh, I get a little bit nervous when looking at such a striking result coming out of a model, but I am comforted to note that just last week, Ameren, for example, suggested that the IRA would lead to a reduction in its retail prices of 4.5%. And that's just at a first glance in terms of how uh, the, the Ameren's um, resource plans would be affected by the IRA. Um, and the, these reduction in electricity prices are expected to promote electrification of buildings and transportation, yielding additional emission reductions beyond those that we uh, represent in our model of the power sector. I think it's interesting here. One other uh, important bit of uh, data or findings from the report is that clean energy due to the IRA, would uh, rise to be about 69 to 75%. That's the range you give of electricity generation. That compares with the 80% goal that President Biden had set out. They're pretty close there, it sounds like. It's pretty close. Uh, That 69 to 75% compares to what we think would be 56% in the no policy baseline, and 38% today. So you can see that there is a general trend towards clean energy, and that has to do with a precipitous reduction in cost for solar and wind and storage. Uh, but this would bas- this would basically double, or more than double, the rate at which a clean energy is entering the power system. And uh, that 80% goal that Biden articulated is roughly uh, aligns with an 80% reduction in emissions from 2005 levels in the power sector. And that represents what would be needed from the electricity sector if the U.S. economy were to achieve the U.S. pledge under the Paris Agreement. So it's just it's a coincidence that those two numbers are so close together, but about 80% clean electricity by 2030 
It corresponds to roughly 80% reductions in emissions from 2005 levels. You know, there's some pretty dramatic numbers here. <laughs> I know as an economist, sometimes you're you're a bit wary of dramatic numbers, as you just mentioned, on the 6 to 7% reduction in electricity prices. But uh, it really struck me that with the IRA, solar generation would grow by 891% from where it is currently by 2030, uh, under what you describe as the central modeling case versus 378% for the no policy scenario. That, that's a big jump. Did I, did I catch that correctly? You caught that correctly, but it is a big jump even in the no policy scenario. Mm-hmm. In other words, renewables are, are becoming ever more prominent. And the uh, Inflation Reduction Act really gives that a booster rocket in terms of uh, the introduction through the power sector. But still, the IRA does not achieve Biden goals. As you hinted at uh, at the outset a, m- a minute ago, uh, it does put the electricity sector and presumably the whole U.S. economy within striking distance. But the IRA is not going to get all the way to achieving uh, U.S. goals under the Paris Agreement. The IRA provides the primary way is promoting investment um, through either a production tax credit or an investment tax credit. A production tax credit uh, gives uh, a, a, a credit on taxes based on production of renewable energy that comes onto the grid. The investment tax credit is made at the time at which investments occur. And uh, any individual project has the option to choose whether to claim the production tax credit or the investment tax credit. Interestingly, the uh, we think that the projects are going to choose the production tax credit because technology costs are falling especially for solar. So uh, if, if it's 30% of the costs that are returned as a, as a tax credit for investment, then the basis of that is falling over time, then the actual payment from the government uh, is reduced as technology improves. So the production tax credit is, is stable. And these are just for those who are you know, experts in power and these numbers will mean something. The production tax credit starts out at um, $25 per megawatt hour in and current 22-year dollars, and the investment tax credit is 30% of the investment for new renewable or new clean energy resources. And then there are bonus provisions, which encourage economic development and uh, a just energy transition. They can ratchet those up to $30 per megawatt hour on a production tax credit and 50% of the investment cost if one chooses the investment tax credit. Um, now, what is going to really be realized, as you suggested earlier, Andy, is also remains uncertain because unlike a policy-driven piece of legislation, which says this is a target, it's legally enforceable, this is what has to happen, this is all carrots. And the question is, you know, is the donkey going to follow the carrots? So electricity demand is very uncertain, uh, especially given the drive towards electrification, which could increase electricity demand, while there's also incentives for energy efficiency. Natural gas price variability is very substantial. We found that to be a very important factor in in shaping the future of the power sector. Um, And then there are other important provisions in the IRA, really very many other important provisions in the IRA affecting the power sector, including the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund and a green bank of $20 billion dollars. Uh, which is expected to leverage ninefold as much private sector capital to make investments uh, in clean energy. 
block grants to states and other funds for local governments and even civil organizations to become involved in energy planning in their communities. So, you know, how all these things actually take take effect is going to be, you're going to have to watch it unfold over the course of the decade. Well, this brings the next question I want to ask you. In, in per the modeling in the report, retail electricity prices will fall, as you said, around 6 to 8% versus the baseline, which is uh, the baseline established by the Energy Information Administration and its annual energy outlook. And, um, you know, th- these prices will fall despite the fact that massive investment in new clean energy infrastructure is going to be needed. Can you walk us through the balance of factors that lead to the net reduction in electricity prices, again, given that, you know, large infrastructure investment that's going to be needed? Well, yes, there's there's one slight course correction, I would say, in terms of what you said, Andy. Uh, it's correct that we rely on the annual energy outlook from the Energy Information Administration to calibrate our model. But we also have updated information to account, for example, for, to the precipitous increase in natural gas prices associated with the Ukraine war, etc. And so we have uh, updated fuel prices that are informed by futures prices in the model. Uh, and so when I say compared to the no policy outcome, it's a no, it's a no policy outcome that is solved within our model. So it's under a consistent set of technology and fuel mm-hmm. price assumptions going forward. Um, now, this, these incentives are driving substantial investments. And the, the the major outcome of interest to us is the important cost shift that is realized from electricity rate payers to taxpayers. And so a takeaway from this conversation, this is the main point for um, those involved in policy to, to really pay attention to. Um, th- this uh, six to seven percent reduction in electricity prices results from um, a variety of outcomes. It, it results from we, you know, we account for changes in investment costs and fuel savings and O and M, and then system costs also include the tax credits. And these changes are passed through to uh, retail electricity customers, uh, and we assume that households enjoy those directly. But also then businesses enjoy cost savings that we assume are passed through to households in proportion to expenditures, for example, on big screen televisions or toasters. So uh, c- consumers see direct reductions in electricity and at the household level and also changes in um, the cost of goods and services. The, the largest portion of expenditure on energy and electricity is in lower income households. So by reducing the price of electricity, this is inherently progressive by reducing the the burden of energy for low-income households. And this is being paid for by an increase in the corporate income tax. And primarily, the owners of capital are in the upper income brackets. The literature suggests that about 75% of the corporate income tax falls on owners of capital and 25% falls on labor. And we represent it just that way in our model. So uh, in terms of the impacts on sources of income. And so it's a it's like a double-sided progressive policy in that the reduction in, in rates is progressive. The tax system has inherent, at least modest, progressive characteristics. And by shifting from rates to taxes, we get a generally a progressive outcome. It's also interesting that this that this may have an efficiency benefit. And the efficiency benefit has to do with the observation by Jim Bushnell and Severin Bornstein and others, uh, Meredith Fowley in a different paper, that 
in many parts of the country, electricity is priced too high compared to the marginal social cost of providing electricity, including the environmental costs associated with electricity. So that is like, what are the costs of just delivering, a, a, for society of delivering electricity services? And we see that electricity prices in many parts of the country are too high. And especially in those regions of the country where there's a relatively clean electricity grid. So this presents a barrier to decarbonization and a barrier to electrification of other parts of the economy. So there's uh, potentially this important efficiency gain of the cost shift that's being made from ratepayers to uh, taxpayers. And, and in terms of magnitude, the net savings by group we uh, forecast is about accounting for all these different kinds of savings and additional costs to the tax system is about $123 in savings for the lowest income quintile per household per year and an increase for the top quintile of, a th of about $1,000 per year. Now, that's really interesting. So again, just to reiterate what you just said, so lower income households will save about $100, $123, I think you have modeled here, as you just said, per year on their household costs. Top income groups will be paying more as a result of the IRA. That, that's correct. That's correct. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the bottom three income quintiles all see, see comparable savings, substantial savings. And then uh, the, it's the fifth income quintile or the top 20% of households in the country that, see, that bear a major portion of the burden of the IRA. So in the modeling, I want to ask, do you include the cost of electric grid expansion and all of this? Because uh, we can have all the expectations of new wind and solar, but if those cannot be interconnected to a grid that's really designed to handle all that intermittent energy, it's not going to go anywhere. Are those costs included? Well, for the most part, yes, but not entirely. Transmission costs involve transmission losses when transmitting power over the over power lines and the cost of construction of building the line. We include the transmission losses in the model and the cost of the existing transmission for purposes of cost recovery of what's in place now. We do not include the cost of build out of new transmission. Overall, transmission is about 11% of the delivered cost of electricity uh, to end use. Uh, and as we get towards the end of the decade into the next decade, expanding the transmission grid is important for, for making it possible to, um, say, deliver the, the energy from wind resources to urban areas. Um, so there will be a need for important investment in transmission. Some of that is supported by the infrastructure bill, which is different legislation. Some of it by loan guarantees provided in the IRA. A majority of it is going to have to come from private capital. And so that will ultimately be an additional cost that we haven't represented. I would say that, in, you know, in our defense, if you will, that the issue for transmission and distribution costs isn't so much about financing and it doesn't affect the overall assessment in the model, but it is really important with respect to the question of siting. How will transmission and distribution be cited going forward? Will it be cited? That becomes one of the uncertainties and one of the barriers to full realization of, of investments under the IRA. 
Well, that's that's a really important point that I wanted to ask about as well. So obviously, there are some potential hurdles to this. One is transmission siding, new generation interconnection, and and uh, most of the new generation that's lining up to interconnect to uh, electric the electric grid these days is renewables. So it's hard to to predict that. But can you give us a little more insight into what you think the actual impact may be on on achieving the outcomes of the IRA? There are regulations for every element of the IRA, rules and regulations to implement the IRA are still to be written. And agencies in Washington are seeking comments. Uh, I invite listeners to uh, engage in that if you have any area of expertise in any of the many facets that are going to be touched by the IRA. But And while uh, citing of transmission and distribution is important, I think the primary obstacle to full realization of the impact of the IRA is actually going to occur at the state and local level. And that has to do with permitting process and land use decisions that already tangle up the effort to get new wind and solar resources in place, as well as other sources of clean clean energy, because the uh, IRA is technology neutral, meaning that, for example, if someone's going to come along and build a new nuclear plant or even geothermal, which has the minimus uh, greenhouse gas emission reductions, it, the, the cap of the, uh, the, the measurement, the metric under the IRA enables geothermal to qualify. So it's technology neutral, but getting any of these projects cited and operative is you know, a major barrier to developing clean energy and that's getting played out at the state and local level generally. That's, that's where, that's the kind of wild card that ha- is going to have the greatest effect on um, implementing the IRA take this a step further in terms of how the IRA is going to change the structure of the industry. The utility industry already, the business model is being shaken by the precipitous decline in renewable costs, as I mentioned. And the investments under the IRA in renewables and uh, potentially in transmission uh, will substitute for new investment in, in gas and possibly new investment in gas pipelines. So, the business models within the utility sector are also going to be challenged. The, the IRA is a carrot approach and does not employ any sticks. So this means that it does not differentiate between emitting the emitting technologies. In other words, it's sort of it's a it, it's not it's not beneficial for fossil fuels generally because it provides huge rewards for clean energy. But within the class of fossil fuel uh, technologies, primarily coal and natural gas, um, it is actually uh, natural gas that is most impacted by the policy. It's renewables are crowding out what otherwise might be new investments in natural gas. And consequently, coal's share of fossil fuel generation actually goes up as a result, even as overall fossil fuel generation goes down under the IRA. Um, you know, a carbon tax, as we talked about three years ago, Andy, in terms of uh, you know carbon price, in terms of how it might affect outcomes in the power sector, it would weigh about twice as heavily on coal as gas. But the IRA does not do that. So consequently, you know, if you one way to criticize the IRA is to notice that this in, this failure to include any sticks, uh, that is, you know, try to, to try to provide a disincentive for generation from high emitting technologies, undermines to some extent the cost effectiveness of the overall policy. That it is what it is because it was done through budget reconciliation, which means it's all about incentives. It's not about uh, any sticks. Well, there's a couple of points here I want to make. 
going back for just a moment to the issue of uh, interconnection of new generation as well as development of the grid, it's probably worth noting here that the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, is working hard looking at solutions to the challenge of interconnection and regional grid expansion at this point. If they sort it out, obviously, this would be, I, I guess, good for the IRA. But again, as you also mentioned, you've got to get the states <laughs> to play game here, and that's always going to be a challenge. Regarding the issue of natural gas that you just mentioned, uh, an interesting thing that I gleaned from reading the report is that when natural gas prices are high, the reduction in emissions from the IRA, as you model them, are actually less. And that talks again to the interaction between coal and gas and renewables. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about, again, how that interaction of gas prices or the phenomenon of you know volatile gas prices can impact the ability of the IRA to reduce emissions by the end of the decade. Yeah, that's a really helpful question. So if just if natural gas prices go up, one might expect a greater incentive to invest in renewables. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yep. Yeah, but that's not the way we've asked the question in this report. In this, in this court, we assume that changes in gas prices are secular trends having to do with other global phenomena such as the war in Ukraine. And so when we say what happens under a high natural gas price scenario, we're saying that compared to a no policy case, so assuming there's going to be high natural gas prices in the future, what is the impact of the IRA compared to not having the IRA? And we contrast that with a low natural gas price future. And what is the impact of the IRA versus not having the IRA? And in a low natural gas price future, you might see more build out of natural gas, ceteris paribus. But the IRA, the incentives for the IRA, then become more important by crowding out those new investments in natural gas and bringing in more investments in renewables. Obviously, we're focusing here on the ITC and PTC for wind and solar primarily. But are there other incentives in the IRA that maybe are or are not included in your model that are important to consider here? There are. There are very many, Andy. That's what's just jaw-dropping about the IRA. But one that is included in our model is an $85 per ton uh, credit for carbon capture and storage. This translates into support for carbon capture and storage at a coal plant, for example, of about $85 per megawatt hour for those who are you know, familiar with the vocabulary here. But this is a really big support for carbon capture and storage. It's probably not enough to totally offset the cost of carbon capture and storage, but it's really biting off the lion's share of, of those costs. And it's it's really striking. You know, even on an international stage, people are looking at that and saying, wow. And we represent that in our model. And that is enough to want the, the, for the model to want to build uh, in, you know, a quite noticeable amount of carbon capture and storage by early in the next decade, both uh, from uh, gas and natural gas and coal plants. But then there are some really important things that, that are outside the power sector that are also really important wild cards, but really open up possibilities for the future. And these just, you know, without being too long-winded about it, these include a hydrogen production tax credit and credits for clean fuel development. There's a methane fee. And then many listeners are going to be interested in the support for electric vehicles, which is up to $7,500 per new electric vehicle and $4,500 for a used 
electric vehicle. These are not immediately available. They are sort of phased in. Uh, they're not immediately available because of the notion that demand is currently already outstripping supply for electric vehicles. And I think Senator Manchin's logic is that why pay people for something that they were going to do anyway? Uh, so in a couple of years, the EV incentives do kick in, but there is an important domestic content in order to be eligible for those. That is that the batteries and other critical components assembly of the electric vehicles has to occur in North America. That, is, that includes Mexico, U.S. and Canada. And uh, this has attracted the irritation, uh, to be sure, of some auto manufacturers abroad, although it has also caused Volkswagen and others to re-up their commitment to building factories in the U.S., uh, which, you know, depending on your perspective, could could be a very good thing. And also that is means tested. So I think it's a $250,000 per household cutoff for eligibility for the full tax credit. Uh, and there's more. But anyway, my point is that there's also quite a bit of, of things outside the power sector. But the thing that's most tangible, it's gotten the most attention is are these investments that are going to occur within the power sector. And of course, the IRA doesn't, uh, you know, exist within a vacuum. There has been other energy-related legislation that's been passed over the last year, year plus. Wonder if you could tell us where the IRA fits into this larger bucket of of, you know, rules, including uh, you know the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill, et cetera, in in, in advancing, uh, you know, decarbonizing the economy. I'm so glad you asked that, Andy. So listeners will may remember that over the last two years, there's been a lot of talk about Biden's original Build Back Better proposal. And there were several climate and energy-related features of that proposal, which never passed under that label. But all these, at least the climate and energy-related features, have pretty much all been funded now, but in separate parts. So there's the infrastructure law you mentioned, $1.2 trillion over 10 years, the biggest infrastructure bill in U.S. history. That's not all climate, but it does include support for electric vehicle charging and public transportation and high-speed internet and uh, hydrogen hubs and support, uh, spending on transmission and support for existing nuclear power plants so that they don't retire and in order to continue to realize their climate benefits. There is a Justice 40 uh, policy provision that came right out of the blocks in the Biden administration that influences all this stuff, uh, that, that is puts a priority on projects and spending. A uh, couple of specific examples are spending to under the infrastructure bill to repair uh, communities that have been split by highways historically, low, typically low-income disadvantaged communities. Also, the priority build-out for electric vehicle charging in areas that uh, are not just simply constituted by upper-middle-income households. Uh, so make sure that rural communities and low-income urban communities also have EV charging uh, structure, and that's where the support is going through the grants to states. There's the CHIPS Semiconductor Act, this is you know, not. This deserves more than just a small mention. I'm not going to dwell on it, but it, amping up the um, production of semiconductors was crucial to the electric vehicle industry and to a bunch of electrification projects. Uh, and there's other regulations that are in the pipeline now, which we expect from the EPA for vehicle standards and industry performance standards, etc. And all these things, all constituted, uh, represent really a full accomplishment of the Biden climate ambition, even though people don't really recognize it because it's come through in parts. What is missing is uh, from the Build Back Better is that there's no forcing function on the outcome. It's all carrots. There's no sticks, as I mentioned previously. 
So consequently, we lose some of the cost effectiveness, and, but to reverse that will require a different Congress. But for now, this array of investments incentivized under the IRA are investments that would have had to happen anyway in order to achieve, achieve decarbonization. Uh, so it's not like money wasted, but it's there's still there's still a missing piece in the U.S. climate agenda, uh, obviously. Then that is to you know close that gap to achieve the Biden goals, and that's you know to an economist such as myself, that's best achieved through the introduction of some type of carbon pricing. Uh, but I think with the IR in place, the magnitude of the carbon price that's necessary to to drive that last bit. Uh, improve the cost effectiveness of all these investments is now you know much smaller than previously we estimated that it had to be. And meanwhile, the IRA has reestablished the U.S. footing on the international stage as you know a, le a legitimate partner in addressing climate change, and uh, it's brought um, many uh, of our you know international partners, especially in Europe, back to the table in terms of uh, speaking with U.S. and international negotiations, and it's given a U.S. a new prestige going into COP27 next month. You know, before we finish up, I don't want to overlook one other key part of your research, and that is your look at the human health impacts of the IRA. You, you modeled these impacts. What were the key findings here? Right, indeed. We look at the um, air quality-related health outcomes associated with uh, fossil fuel use in the power sector. We do this on a national basis by uh, mapping from county centroid to county centroid for 3,000 counties, the change in emissions that are going to occur within that county, and then what are the downwind effects on uh, changes in, in air atmosphere concentrations. We look at changes in human health, and then we also monetize those changes in human health using the same practice that the EPA does, and it's benefit cost analysis for regulatory impact assessments. And we find overall that a reduction of more than 40% of the negative public health outcomes associated with pollution from the power sector will be reduced due to the IRA, over 40% improvement. Now, these, are, these improvements are dispersed broadly across the population, broadly across across income groups, they are concentrated in the, in the heartland, the middle part of the country, so on a regional basis, and that's because that's the region of the country where you see the greatest amount of coal generation currently. But when we add this monetized value of changes in health outcomes and the monetized value of climate benefits, uh, the so-called social cost of carbon, the reduction in energy electricity prices that are going to be or that are expected, and the increase in taxes to pay for all this, adding all those together, we uh, calculate that net benefits per average household is about a thousand dollars per household under the IRA. So, a final question for you here, and I kind of already asked it a little bit earlier, but I want to come back to it one more time and pin you on this one. You know, given the challenges that we talked about, building new transmission lines, interconnection problems, all those are challenges, all that. To what extent are you expecting us to see the full economic environmental benefits that could come out of the IRA? Yeah, you're asking a really subjective question here, and I don't want to be uh, negative. But I will say that there are some important obstacles here, some important challenges. So our modeling, I think, is straightforward and very reasonable with all, with all lots of these constraints in place, recognized and appropriate adjustments made. But still, uh, until the bird is in the hand, you don't really know you have it. And I think that there are challenges, especially at the state and local level. 
to realizing the ambitions of uh, build out of renewable energy under the IRA. But on the other hand, the calculus has changed due to sort of the federalist nature of the U.S. system in that the federal government has put all this money on the table and it's there for businesses and investors at the state and local level to take advantage of. And so it puts them in a situation of advocating strongly for state governments to resolve some of the bottlenecks that have held up the ability to build out rapidly the clean energy infrastructure. And that's a really unusual and exciting political economy dynamic. But you know, making predictions, Andy, about how that's actually going to play out is, whoa, that's really, <laughs> that's, that's, re- that's really uncertain. Uh, I, I see. So I, I have to offer caution in the sense that, that, like, this isn't a done deal. A lot of things still have to happen in order to realize these potentials. But on the other hand, everything from you know six up to sixty billion dollars of investments just to sort of enabling investments through block grants to states and things like that, plus the dynamic incentives that the IRA unleashes for uh, investors and the investment community and for you know ratepayers to promote these investments makes it uh, really an interesting policy development. And as I say, I'm, I, I forecast that it's the most important environmental outcome since the 1970 Clean Air Act. Dallas, thank you very much for talking. Thank you, Andy. Today's guest has been Dallas Bertram, a senior fellow with Resources for the Future. Check out the Climate Center for Energy Policy website for more podcasts, research, and upcoming events. To keep up with the center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now and have a great day. <music>